Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Welcome once again to Americans Watching the Footy, your number one source of WNBA draft information. Are you an Atlanta Dream, Chicago Sky, or Dallas Wings fan? Well, we have all the hard-hitting WNBA draft analysis for you. I'm Ethan Castle. I am Benjamin Castle. This is episode 13, and I've already run out of creative ways to introduce the show, so make of that what you will. Round four was not a round that looked super glamorous in terms of matchups, especially after the Thursday and Friday games. But man, it delivered. There wasn't really a single dull game. Well, actually, the first one may have been a little dull, but everything had some storylines to it all the way through. And there were some surprising turns of events throughout. I think if you looked at each game and guessed what the expected margin of victory would be and the winner. I think only one of the nine would have really lined up as expected. You know, if you break it down further into kind of the flow of the game and stuff, sometimes the actual final margin can be a bit misleading, as we've said before. But I think the only game that kind of went as you would roughly expect would have been Geelong against Brisbane. Other than that, a lot of surprises. I think we're starting to actually learn more about teams. There are still some situations where I have more questions than answers. But let's dig into it, because hopefully through these discussions, we'll not only bring up some of those questions and answers, but maybe have our own sort of logical progressions as well. Sometimes just having these discussions helps me kind of think through what I just watched. And as we're not even 24 hours removed from the end of round four, I think there's still a lot that's pretty fresh still kind of being figured out, and I'm excited to discuss it. So let's begin with the Thursday night round opener, Port Adelaide 4-12-36. Still hard to believe that. Defeated by Melbourne 10-8-68. Let's just start with the fact that Port Adelaide registered their first ever goalless half in the AFL, scoring just five behinds in the first half. And that was after, really, the first quarter had them still in things with Melbourne only managing a goal themselves. It was one of those first quarters where teams just kind of felt each other out. It was pretty ugly. What really stood out to me more than anything else for this entire game, though, was the sequence at the very end of the second quarter. Port Adelaide is going to have a kick towards goal. Chance to maybe get one to go in a half with at least some level of decent morale. Todd Marshall was setting up to kick one. And then Zach Butters took a shot at Jake Bowie. And it was in retaliation. And Butters got called for it, and that took away their chance to score after the siren. And what really drove the point home to me was Butters coming off the field smiling, 
not like a, oh my God, I can't believe this shit smile, but just like an I don't care smile. And I'm not one to accuse teams of quitting usually, but they look like they completely gave up, especially in the middle of that five goal sequence late in the second quarter where Melbourne started to pull away from there on out. Port Adelaide looked completely disinterested, completely uninvolved. And I don't know how much of that's a reflection on the players, how much of that's a reflection on Ken Hinckley losing control of his team. But this is more troubling than any other lousy result we've seen so far. I mean, look, North Melbourne lost by over 100 a week ago. I think in a lot of respects, this was far worse because it wasn't just that they were getting outplayed. They looked like they didn't want to be there. And for that to happen in round four is an enormous issue that signals deeper issues than just what's happening on the field. Well, it makes you want to sort of discount all the good that Melbourne managed. And even though their scoring wasn't great, they did manage a lot of good things. Max Gaughan probably had his best game thus far. In the first half alone, when Scott Lysette was still doing okay, he did dislocate his shoulder. But Gone managed 17 hitouts and 301 meters. Stephen May kept up his kind of quarterbacking that back half. A lot of pieces for Melbourne were effective, even though they were a bit quieter. James Harms is a great example for me. 23 disposals, seven marks. Tom Sparrow had 19 and five clearances, gained over 500 meters. I think James Harms being an interchange really sums up Melbourne's depth. And this shows that they don't have to play with any individual standout performer because they're just so deep and so balanced throughout that there's really no weak spot, even if nobody really authoritatively takes over. And that's a good point to raise also when Christian Petraka was tagged. And I say tagged decently by... Willem Drew, Petraka only had 12 kicks and Clayton Oliver had only nine. And it didn't matter because like you're saying, Ethan, Melbourne are so deep that their top pieces can have off games and it really won't matter. Although Luke Jackson also had another excellent effort overall doing everything in the forward half. My main takeaway from this, though, was not Melbourne. It was just how listless, how despondent, how spineless Port Adelaide looked. And again, I don't like accusing teams of giving up, especially this early in the season. It's one thing if you're checked out when you're not making the finals and it's like round 22. It's another when it's round four. And I think this is the sort of game where you really question Ken Hinckley's competence as a coach, because it's one thing to not have the guys right tactically. It happens. Good coaches screw up. But to not have any semblance of motivation They seriously looked like they had no interest in being on the field. And you'd think over the last few years, this has been a finals team year in and year out. This is a team that looks so close to getting over the hump. And then they give you that. It raises a lot of questions about the chemistry of this club. I know it's a bit of a hackneyed phrase, but the culture. I've got a lot of questions about what's going on behind closed doors at Port Adelaide after that. And it's something that makes me question things even more when you consider that Port started this game pressuring well. They were interested at least to a point. So is it that they're not used to this situation? Is it that they were just so demoralized by that scoring run from Melbourne in the second quarter when Melbourne kicked five goals one? Is it that Lysette and Wines were having their difficulties 
and that so many other big pieces were already out, whatever it is, once their morale took a downturn, it never really came back up. Without bagging on them too much more, first off, Melbourne's a team that knows how to go on runs. You've got to be prepared for that. You've got to be able to handle that mentally. And second, maybe we're starting to notice a trend with Port Adelaide where when things go wrong, they really cascade out of control. I mean, we've seen that in the past few years where they haven't lost many games, but when they've lost, more often than not, they've gotten absolutely blown off the field. And you wonder, is it a psychological thing? And again, I don't like accusing teams of that. I normally think things like who wants it more are such easy cliches. It's like, no shit, every team wants it. But they look like a team that can't handle even the slightest bit of adversity. Well, they're neck deep in adversity now. And as much as it was a must show something this round off the back of how poorly they played here, I think it's even more pressing that there's something some semblance of, oh, wait, we can build off this, even if it's not this year, when they head to Carlton Saturday night in the U.S. slash Sunday afternoon in Australia. They'll be without Ali Wines for that after his heart issue. This seems like it's something that is on the minor side, not necessarily myocarditis. And we'll see what Scott Lysette's status is again. If there's any sort of optimism report, it's that in the last 60 years of the VFL, AFL, two teams have made the finals after starting 0-4, and one of them, that being North Melbourne in 1975, went on to win the flag. The other was the 2017 Sydney Swans. Jeremy Finlayson's made a strong case to get back into the club after scoring six in the Sandfall. I think he's actually responded really well to his demotion, and maybe bringing him back in will inject some life into the team, but at this point... My thoughts surrounding Port Adelaide have really shifted from, all right, they've got some positives. Now they've just got to piece it together to what the fuck is going on here. The other sequence that summed it up for me, aside from Zach Butters retaliating and smiling, which I hope that they address pretty severely behind the scenes. The other for me was when it looked like Mitch Georgiatis was going to get Port's first goal. And firstly, I thought he'd run too far. But secondly, he fell, couldn't do it himself, and then Sam Mays' kick was touched by James Jordan. I did like what I saw from James Jordan. He had a quietly good game. Tom Sparrow's another guy who's just been quietly sharp for Melbourne. One thing you mentioned, Sam Wiedemann's performance being a bit uninspiring. He's probably going to get another chance because Ben Brown just copped a two-week suspension in the VFL. Hard to believe someone as genuine and kind as Ben Brown could ever do anything suspension-worthy, but things happen on the field that don't reflect off-field personalities. I mean, like Braden Maynard being so dirty on the field and so cool off of it. So those things don't always line up together, but it's still kind of jarring just with what we know about Ben Brown as a person. He's like the type of guy who could never hurt anyone, but that should solve a bit of a lineup dilemma for the Demons, who overall, despite not blowing me away took care of business. And that's kind of been my takeaway for Melbourne more often than not, is whether or not it's glamorous, they take care of business. Sparrow with 19 disposals, five clearances, 551 meters at a game leading 10 inside 50s. That's a performance that's worthy of votes. And he's another piece that I don't think gets discussed enough, speaking to the depth of Melbourne's lineup and how they're not flashy, but they get it done. It's kind of like the TSA. I'm TS. 
motherfucking A. We handle shit. That's what we do. Consider this situation. Fucking handle. Consider Port Adelaide handled by Melbourne and consider Brisbane handled by Geelong, though it wasn't necessarily the prettiest and Geelong should have done a lot more damage than they did. Geelong 11-14-80, defeating Brisbane 11-4-70. This was a game that Geelong should have taken by a couple more goals with more accurate kicking. There were a lot of positives for them, and I think that's reflected in just their control of the game throughout, especially past the midpoint of the second quarter or so, even though it didn't necessarily translate into a huge margin on the scoreboard. First off, as much as I think Geelong can be a really successful team in terms of percentage of goals converted, there are times when they look really shaky kicking-wise, and it really just comes down to who's taking those shots. Outside of Hawkins, Cameron, and I guess Stengel and Myers, one other guy who could help them kick more accurately would be Gary Rowan. Brian Myers is playing more of a midfield role. I'll get to him more in a minute. And then Tyson Stengel, when he got the ball up front, did his job. But this isn't a team with a lot of great goal kickers. It's just the ones that are good goal kickers are really, really good. But a few things that really stood out to me in this game. First off, they played without Tom Stewart. And they managed to excel defensively regardless. They got knocked around a little bit by Daniel McStay. He played a really good game. But other than that, the Cats defenders played great. I thought Jack Henry responded tremendously well after two performances that I thought could have merited being omitted. I really liked what I saw from Mark O'Connor, the way he slowed down Lockie Neal. Yes, Neal racked up a bunch of disposals, but he didn't have a lot of super impactful possessions, if that makes any sense. You know, he had a game-high 30 disposals, but only 251 meters gained. Compare his ground game to the first two rounds, 439 versus Port Adelaide in round one, and then 778 at Essendon in round two. I'm discounting round three because he rolled his ankle. It was also a really good game from Sam DeConing, who had eight intercepts and four contested marks. And I thought just coaching-wise, this was a terrific game for Chris Scott and his entire staff, where they realized Here's what works. We have this style. We need to run and then throw in a few short kicks and we can get what we want. We can play to our speed when they play through Brad close, when they play a speed based game, it goes really well. And it was a lot of fun to watch. And I thought he was technically a late inclusion, but I'm pretty sure they knew all along that Brian Myers was going to be playing and they just listed Isava Radagalea to throw Brisbane off. That's something Chris Scott likes to do. I thought, Myers actually played a really good game in the midfield, finished with 25 disposals, four intercepts. What's so interesting is with his kicking style, which as every broadcaster will tell you is unique, he's not a great passer in the midfield when he's kicking. He's a good kick on goal, but in the midfield, it's his handball ability that's so good. And he's so quick and squirrely out there that it really fed into everything. Whenever he touched the ball, good things happened. But I think perhaps the best on ground out of everyone was Isaac Smith, who looked five, seven years younger than he is. He looked tremendous. This was definitely his best game in the hoops by far. The numbers don't do it justice. The 29 disposals and 10 marks are great. The 626 meters gained and the goal are great. But he just played a really strong overall game, looking like a polished but not past his peak player. I really liked what I saw from him. 
Smith ought to get two or three votes. The one other person that I'm thinking may deserve the three votes is Mark Blitzhouse, who in his hybrid ruck forward role really drove a lot of what Geelong was able to do. Geelong dominated the hitouts between Blitzovs and Stanley. They won those 45 to 25, and they won center clearances 15 to 9. And it turned out that Oscar McInerney's absence was much bigger than Tom Stewart's. So I'm going to ask you this question, Ethan. Does Brisbane win this game with Oscar McInerney? I don't think so. And I say that because I just really like the sort of principles the Cavs displayed altogether. They didn't let things like inaccurate kicking get to them. The only stretch where the Lions really seemed to control the game was when Marcus Adams was racking up those intercept marks in the third. And consider that even with Daniel McStay able to kind of run loose, the Cats were still able to hold Brisbane to 70 points. I would think with Tom Stewart in there, they probably still aren't able to stop Joe Danaher because he's so big and so authoritative. But I think they would have been able to handle McStay better. But there were just little bits and pieces where the Cats played that just looked so smooth. Yes, they also did get one really bad call their way late with Hawkins getting away with a clear push in the back. But I thought overall the calls mostly evened out. That one just leaves a bad taste in your mouth because it happened late and it put the cats up by nine. That one would have left a much sour taste in my mouth had they ended up calling that clear push in the back against Brad Close a little bit after. I did not think it was a super well-officiated game, but I also don't think that was what decided the game. I think this was just a very resilient performance by Geelong. They were able to play against a team that kind of makes you play tough, but still stuck with their style. They didn't let the Brisbane physicality get to them. And that was with Brisbane doing a nice job taking Jeremy Cameron away. Cameron ended up not really affecting the game that profoundly after he was so dominant against Collingwood the week before. Finished with one goal and two behinds. But yeah, the Caps dominated the hit-out battle. Brad Close looks like the guy who would win the Kargi Greaves medal if it was decided right now. And just overall, if Geelong's defense plays like that, even without Tom Stewart, they're going to go places. I was just super satisfied with the overall performance. I thought it was another quietly excellent game for Jed Buse, who also scored a really nice goal. And we got this far without talking about the real star of the show the construction worker behind the goal on the end that's being renovated who kept fishing out the ball after it got kicked through. And how do we end up not really mentioning what Hawkins managed? We mentioned that Hawkins was better, but five goals, seven marks on just 14 disposals, like he does a lot of the time. Doesn't get a huge number of touches, but he's more than made them count. And he could have easily had a sixth or seventh goal but he didn't get discouraged when he missed a kick or two. Again, I thought just this was a mentally tough, resilient performance that I hadn't seen out of them a lot of times. You know, that third quarter could have really turned ugly when Marcus Adams was just marking everything in sight, and it seemed like Bridgman had really countered what the Cats had wanted to do, and then Geelong responded. Um, On the negative side, Quinton Arkell did have a goal early in the third that was pretty important, but seemed like he struggled under pressure, and I don't know how much of that is lack of experience. And then he ended up hurting, I believe, his ankle. He ended up leaving in a boot later that night. I think it raises the question, would he have more success on a lesser team? Because he would have time to work through his mistakes, whereas in a situation like this, where you're on a team that's going for the flag, you know, it's now or never with this core, 
there aren't that many opportunities for learning moments if you're a guy like Quentin Arkell. And that's tough because I like his game. I just think he's in a tough spot by no fault of his own. What I really did like, though, was the way they combined Myers and Stangle, and they found a way to accommodate both. Myers obviously is at his best when he's up front, but I think he adapted to more of a midfield role really nicely. Fundamentally speaking, he's a really solid player who fits into the quickness of the whole team. And I think his individual numbers aren't going to quite represent just how well he played. But you look at the amount of plays that were set up by a good handball from him, things like that. You look at meters gained by other players because of something that Myers set up. It fits with Brad Close as well. Brad Close only gained 245 meters, but it seemed like he was everywhere. Just remember... Ethan's not biased at all when it comes to Ryan Myers. He's not a Cats fan. He doesn't have a cat who's literally named after him. From a Brisbane perspective, disappointing because it's been close to two decades now since they've last won at Geelong. This is a game that's definitely considered a rivalry, especially after last year. Not just the Zach Bailey stuff, but with Chris Fagan and Chris Scott getting into it with each other. This wasn't so much a game Brisbane lost as it was a game Geelong won. The Lions didn't play particularly poorly. The Cats just played a little bit better. And to Fagan's credit, and I think just demonstrating his understanding of the game at large this past Friday, he wasn't pounding the umpires on the missed call against Hawkins in his press conference. I'm not sure how much that was to avoid getting a fine, but he said the better team won, and I think he's right on that front. This was, again, not the best performance by Geelong, but I thought it was one of their most mature and composed, and I was just super satisfied with everything I saw. They played the right style. They played together. They played smart. They didn't let a nasty stretch in the third quarter get to them, and I think they've really realized what makes this team go, and they've realized just how much they can do through Brad Close, and I'm looking forward to seeing moving forward more of that. And before we move on to the Saturday and Sunday games. I think sometimes when you look at how players are voted for in Brownlow stuff and things like that, it doesn't necessarily contextualize the performance. Like, from a number standpoint, Jack Henry didn't do anything outstanding. But when you consider how bad he was the two weeks prior and how much better he was, that's the sort of guy who deserves serious credit and deserves to be mentioned, even if he's not going to be receiving those sorts of votes for awards, those five marks were big. And he did a good job making sure that none of the Brisbane forwards really got the best of him more than once or twice. Other than that, it was just a really good showing. And I think that the votes and the stats aren't going to do it justice, but you see just how much of a difference he makes when he's on, just how much better he was. At the start of the episode, we alluded to the fact that Eight of the nine games went against our expectations in terms of the margin or just the overall feeling of the game. And I'd say City versus North Melbourne was probably the most surprising game for me that still ended up with the same victor. Sydney, 13-8-86, defeating North Melbourne, 12-3-75. As much as the Swans did end up winning this game, I'm leaving impressed with what David Noble did to remedy some of the sour spots from the first three rounds, especially last week against Brisbane. This really looked like a different Kangaroos team, and it started with Jack Zebel 
being brought forward and taking five goals. Between Zebel up front, Luke McDonald playing the wing, and our boy Todd Goldstein going through the middle more, this looked like a reinvented North Melbourne team. And I just really liked how they played, even though they came up short and you could focus on Adu Bosanovulagi's decision in the final minute that may have cost them a chance at a go-ahead goal. They just looked like a really solid team. They led by as much as 17 at one point. And while it's frustrating to lose a game like that, where you had that lead, at one point they went on a 25-0 run, considering the expectations, I thought they were the more impressive team. They lost Cam Zerhar to a concussion and still managed to hang in there and held the lead with about seven minutes left. And I just wasn't particularly impressed with Sydney comparatively. I thought North Melbourne, despite the outcome, looked really, really strong. And again, that they showed this response. It's such a contrast to Port Adelaide, where Port Adelaide was gutted a week ago and then just came out flat, whereas North Melbourne got stomped. They're in a position where you're looking at a wooden spoon, maybe a couple more wins all year. And they came out and played a really inspired game and took a very good team down to the wire. And that's without Nick Larkey being impactful really at all. He only ended up with six disposals and a behind. The McCartan brothers did a good job on him, but we saw much more out of Jade Stevenson. 24 disposals, eight tackles, seven marks. Jason Horn Francis does not look like an 18-year-old out there. Looks much more experienced. 23 disposals, six clearances, five tackles, four marks. It seems like he's understanding how to integrate himself within North Melbourne's schemes a bit more. And then Jai Simpkin. Ah, well, if it isn't the Simp. Was a workhorse. 33 disposals, 12 contested possessions, six score involvements, five clearances, 543 meters, and a pretty nice goal off a long run despite some fatigue. My concern with North Melbourne, as good as this performance was and as inspiring as it was, and as much of an endorsement as it is for David Noble's coaching and his ability to motivate his players a week after a complete shit show, how many of these guys, other than Horn Francis and maybe Stevenson, are going to be impact players when they enter a contending window? Because a lot of the players that were more impactful in this game are getting older or in the case of Tristan Zary might be on the move. You know, St. Kilda nearly had him last off season. I did think Tristan Zary played very well for what it's worth. And he's going to make trading for him much more difficult, going to make it a much higher asking price. He had his 23 hit outs, but I'm just not sure how many of these players are going to get to be a part of things when things are really looking good, when North Melbourne has any shot at reaching the finals. And it's too bad because I really liked what I saw from them. Jerry is 23, but again, could be on the move. Jai Simpkin, who looks like the next captain, and Ben Mackay are 24. But you're right. There are a lot of older pieces that make up the most impactful parts of this squad. And Todd Goldstein comes to mind first. He's 33. In our team-by-team preview, I was thinking... Man, he's been a one-club guy his whole career. Is he content with that, or does he want to move somewhere else and try to get a flag at the end of it all? I think this is a performance where you look less at the individual contributors, because, again, a lot of the more significant individual contributors are not going to be there that long. And you look more at just the overall scheme, what brought you success, 
and the team's overall ability to come back from such an embarrassing performance a week earlier. I think that's something that you can really draw inspiration from and build off. And that's way bigger than what the final score ended up being. Meanwhile, the Swans played far from their best and got the job done themselves. I thought North did a really good job making sure that Nick Blakey didn't really take over the game. He's a guy where once he touches the ball, good things happen for the Swans, and they made sure that he wasn't a completely dominant presence. They made sure that Patty McCartan didn't kill him with the intercept marks. They really took McCartan out of the equation, and it seemed like they were just well-prepared for countering Sydney's strengths. You know, Justin McInerney and Callum Mills still had really nice games. Isaac Heaney with another really good performance, but they made sure that the things that the Swans have done to kill other teams, namely the Blakey McCartan combo weren't going to be what did them in. And I think that's just, again, a really good reflection on David Noble. It's we know what your strengths are. Find some other way to beat us. Even though Sydney's clearly the more talented team, North Melbourne did a really good job preparing for them and making them get creative to beat them. I will say Patty McCartan did still have nine intercepts that time with Braden Campbell and Dane Rampy for the lead, but but even with those stats, his presence didn't seem to be nearly as prominent. You mentioned Isaac Heaney down the stretch. Really, his corralling of the team helped the Swans to victory. And I was concerned that Peter Laddams wouldn't be up to the task against the Jerry and Goldstein tandem. But you know what? He had 27 hitouts, and North Melbourne only won those overall by three. And I was kind of surprised that. Callum Sinclair wasn't in for Sydney. He was really their top ruck before Hickey was brought in. But off the back of this performance from Laddams, I'm wondering how necessary Sinclair might be. Sam Reed ended up being the second ruck, had six hit outs himself, had a goal. And that tandem seemed to work okay against one of the best in the league. Wondering now, you know, how Sinclair and Joel Marty fit in in the future there. Obviously, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention Buddy Franklin, who broke a finger and will be out at least two weeks. That said, he had his two goals, but there were more than enough contributors for the Swans. Sam Reed showed a sort of similar body type. Ben Ronk, when he came on as the injury sub, immediately scored. I thought Will Hayward did a nice job. And I think Sydney can still find more than enough scoring, even when Buddy's not out there. Going through the middle, Chad Warner was a surprisingly long kick. He had a 55-meter goal at one point. Didn't realize he had that at him. So I'm wondering if that will serve him and the Swans well, considering their midfield depth, that, you know, maybe he'll be one of those mids that ends up going more forward for them in the future. One thing that I didn't think North Melbourne was prepared for all that well was James Bell, who got into space, especially along kind of that right side wing a couple times and had goals early in both halves. Remember, North Melbourne held a 74 to 60 lead before surrendering 20 straight points. But still, I think they did a great job tactically. And I'm curious to see how Adam Simpson takes that into account for how teams face the Swans when West Coast hosts Sydney next week and how other teams that are going to be facing the Swans moving forward take this game plan. Because I think North Melbourne showed a lot for how to match up with Sydney, even though they didn't quite have the horses to beat them. Speaking of Adam Simpson, he was a North Melbourne man throughout his career, played 15 years there, and his Eagles actually won. Holy cow. 
They beat Collingwood by 13 in a rare Collingwood Marvel Stadium home game. Collingwood 10-14-74, defeated by West Coast 14-3-87. This was a game that Collingwood really should have grabbed by the horns, especially in the third quarter. But the Eagles kicked accurately. Their established players, especially in the forward half, did what they needed to to get them to victory in the end. I want to ask you to look at this game two ways. First, I want your immediate aftermath reaction, and then we'll get to your reaction knowing what we know now. So first, tell me about this game from the standpoint of it's Saturday night, maybe, I don't know, two hours after the Eagles finished their win. Give me your full Eagles fan takeaway from what you saw. Okay, well, at that point on Saturday, I was focusing on Richmond and the Bulldogs, but throughout that night, I was just in shock. I was in shock that Collingwood managed to mess things up that badly when even when they scored three goals in the third quarter, they should have had twice that, if not more. And I was impressed by West Coast's ability to continue responding, their ability to stay with them throughout and being able to come through in the end. Really, we only was visible from the beginning. He was starting more toward the middle, and it would be very welcome if he can prove himself there more, given his relative youth on this team, even at 26. This is an older side. I think they're actually older than Collingwood. They're one of the oldest in the competition, as I mentioned last week. He only ended up kicking three goals. He's got great instincts when he's got the ball in his hands. However, he also couldn't stop himself from falling into Jack Ginevan's verbal traps and got 50 meters for verbal abuse, leading to a goal. From my perspective as a Geelong fan, I see some parallels between him and Tyson Stengel. And don't think this is just a comparison because they're both indigenous players. It's that they've both missed a lot of time. But you see in both that they've got really good sense around the goalposts. The difference is Stengel's a bit more composed, but Rioli is a bit stronger and able to handle himself in the midfield, whereas Stengel really can't play anything besides way up forward because he's just not big enough, whereas Rioli can drop into the midfield when need be, and he can be a really valuable player as long as he stays out of his own head. You look at what really Rioli is able to do when he's in the right headspace. And I also see some parallels with Liam Ryan in terms of Ryan's ability through the middle. Ryan is definitely a half forward, but he can also go on some good running stretches. And he didn't get the ball all that much, but when he got it, he used it very well. Had a couple really nice kicks inside 50 to set up goals and had a couple goals himself. The Eagles were never out of this game. Collingwood's biggest lead was only 17 points. And even when the tie of the game was really going their way, the Eagles didn't let it get away from them on the scoreboard, even when they were sloppier with the ball in hand. They had trouble getting out of their defensive 50 at times, especially in the second quarter, and they couldn't get into the forward 50 for a lot of the contests. They ended up losing inside 50s, 61 to 42. But when that didn't work, you got Josh Kennedy, who's able to bomb it long, and that's what he did for his second goal. At that time, Collingwood was was up 57-44 before that. And really from that point, from Kennedy's goal, I felt a lot better about things. And I wonder if that was a morale for the Eagles at large, considering 
They couldn't push forward nearly as well, but they were still able to get the goal that they needed to stay into things. From a tactical standpoint, Jack Ginneman doing his thing as that agitator sort of enforcer type was definitely something the Eagles had to contend with. But I thought they did a really good job making sure Isaac Quainer didn't take over, whereas against Geelong, Quainer was racking up intercept marks left and right. He finished with six intercepts, but it was nowhere near as noticeable, whereas McGovern had his 11. Jack Crisp had nine, but I thought the two guys who really stood out against Geelong for the three quarters where Collingwood was the better team, Quainer and Reef McGinnis, didn't do anywhere near as much in this game, and the Eagles did a good job making sure that those guys couldn't put Collingwood over the edge. It's also the second straight week Patrick Lipinski didn't completely dominate possessions. He had just 21 disposals this time, six kicks, 15 handballs. I think teams have learned how to compete with him as they've kind of learned how to measure up with this new look Collingwood. You mentioned McGovern. He had his 11 intercept possessions and eight marks. Alex Witherden was probably the one that stood out to me the most for the Eagles. He had 27 disposals. Eight contested possessions, was working at over 85%, nine intercepts, seven marks, nearly gained 500 meters. Also at halfback, Liam Duggan did well, 19 possessions for him, 10 marks, five inside 50s from halfback. I'm really liking the progression of both of them, and with McGovern and Hearn getting older, I feel like they're going to really need to be the centerpieces of West Coast back half going into the future. But going back up forward, Zach Langdon is a player that I'm really starting to enjoy. Had a very busy, very contested day, but had 15 possessions at 86.7%. Seven score involvements, four inside 50s. He had a goal. He and Liam Ryan were able to play off each other well at half forward. But going toward the end of the game, it's when the established older players were able to drive the Eagles home the end. I already mentioned Josh Kennedy. He had three goals on just five possessions, and a couple of those goals were not the easiest. The inside 50 stats and the fact that he only had such a limited number of possessions are stats that definitely have a correlation, but it's good to see that he still has the impact he does when he's able to get the ball in hand. Jack Darling is still a player about whom I have complicated feelings because of all the stuff that happened this offseason, but he ended up giving the Eagles the lead. Ethan, what was the thing that you said about him? He has a smooth brain, but he's a smooth kick in front of the goal. There we go. Darling ended up having what was really the dagger after getting the mark from Jack Redden off the loose ball at ground level. That was a play where really multiple Collingwood defenders seemed to be lost or out of place between that ground contest and the goal square where Darling was. But I really felt good about the final result when Jake Waterman got that bouncing goal after Darling centered. Man, am I glad that my roommate was not in at the time because I immediately leapt up from my chair and did just like that running fist pump jump type thing. That was the point where I really thought, okay, the Eagles have this. It's only eight points, but... After that, I can't see them losing this. I do have to ask, with the injury news that came out on Australian Monday, American Sunday night, how do you feel? Well, this is when really my day after perspective starts to take hold. And really, I had some sobering thoughts about this game even before that news. But because it's so important, we're going to get to it first. 
Nick Nanui is out until the second half of the season with MCL damage. I noticed that he was slow to get up after the bounce following Willie Rioli's third goal, his go-ahead goal with, I believe that was about 5.10 left on the clock at the point that Nanui ended up leaping and being slow to get up. Ethan, I texted it to you then. I was hesitant to say anything else about it because it seemed like he was in good spirits after the contest, but it was something that definitely lingered in my mind, and it's a crushing blow. Even though Natanui ended up losing the overall hitout battle, he had 26 to Brody Grundy's 33, but each of them had nine hitouts to advantage, and Natanui was very good in the contested possessions as usual, collected 15 of 16 of those. Even though Natanui ended up losing the overall hitout battle, he had 26 to Brody Grundy's 33, but each of them had nine hitouts to advantage, and Natanui was very good in the contested possessions as usual, collected 15 of 16 of those. And then a couple other sobering stats when I was looking back and complimenting my notes on this game. A couple stats that go hand-in-hand with Jeepa. And as I was tidying up my notes on this game, there were a couple stats that I saw, a couple stats that I sought out that were signs that The Eagles played far from their best. The Collingwood really were, in a large part of the game, the better team. Uh, I mentioned the one of them is the inside 50 count, which I mentioned already. I'll say it again. 61-42 in Collingwood's favor. And the other was the expected score. At AFLX score on Twitter has these expected scores. And I think it's just a good reflection of what you should expect from a team given the difficulty of kicks, and also given their abilities and their performance. The expected score for this game was 90-52 to for Collingwood, and I think that just about tells the story when you also factor in the goal and behind counts for, for this one. I don't necessarily like reducing games to stat lines, but in this case, it's really telling that Collingwood had many more opportunities and just couldn't get them done. There were a number of performers for Collingwood that stood out. Ethan, you mentioned Jack Crisp, and I'm glad you did because he was all over the place. He had nine intercepts, nine inside 50s, six marks, six score involvements, a game leading 676 meters and 29 possessions. Braden Maynard was excellent in his halfback role. He had 22 possessions, nine intercepts himself. Seven marks, six inside 50s. He is a player that you love to hate. And he is just, I feel like Pesky kind of undersells it because he's such a physically impactful player and also good with the ball in hand. In the middle and really throughout the ground, Brody Grundy was by and large the better Ruckman. 33 hitouts, 19 disposals. He had eight clearances and gained over a third of a kilometer by himself. And then, of course, there's the Daycost brothers working their magic. I'd say that they may have been the two best players on ground throughout. Nick Daycost, 32 disposals, 490 meters gained. Josh Daycost, 28 disposals and a goal. They were, by ranking points, two of the top three. Nick Daycost, number one, and then Brody Grundy was second. Josh clocked in at third. I want to raise a question, though. How much did Jordan Degoe's absence affect Collingwood? Would they have been able to kick more accurately in order to win this game just if Jordan Degoe was out there? Was that the only missing piece for them? 
I'm not sure if that was the only missing piece because I think part of the result may be a reflection of Collingwood's fast-paced style having its downsides, but I feel like Dugowie definitely could have steadied things kind of at the front of the 50 and that his general kicking accuracy could have helped them. I don't think any one piece would have gotten Collingwood over the line in this one. Brody Majacek, though, not one, but two of the three finalists for Mark of the Week. In the space of a little over a minute. And both coming against Jeremy McGovern, who had a really nice game. One guy who I thought wasn't so solid for the Eagles was Jack Redden. I thought he had a really difficult night, though he made up for it in key moments. From a Collingwood standpoint, though, all of a sudden you're 2-2 two and two when you feel like you could and possibly should be 4-0. And now it's great because you get to go to the Gavin next, which is, you know, a very easy place to play. Never hard to beat Brisbane on their home ground. So I'm curious to see where Collingwood look at things and how they take inventory and just what their general attitude is after these two losses. Because you could make a case that they could have won each of the last two games. I think three and one probably would be a fairer representation of what they've been than the two and two mark they currently have. But I'm just curious to see how they respond because it's a pretty unforgiving stretch of the schedule for them going to Brisbane next and then the Anzac Day match against Essendon. So they're in an interesting spot right now. And I think we've seen other teams in these kind of sink or swim moments under pressure. And now it's Collingwood's turn to show how they can handle it. I think they've got the older presence that can handle these sorts of things with the composure needed. But also for some of this core, it's kind of their first time going through this. So it puts them in a really interesting position moving ahead. With that, we're going to take a quick ad break and then we're going to break down the other five games of the round. We've gotten through both of our kind of lengthy breakdowns of our own team. So these next few should be a bit more concise. Thanks for listening. Stick around and make sure to give some support to our sponsors because we like money. As always, you can find us on Twitter at AmericansFooty. You can find me at Castle Media. That's Castle with a K, K A S S E L M E D I A. I've been thinking about turning this into some sort of like 70s commercial jingle, but decided against it. I am on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. Ethan's cat, Grian, is on Instagram at cat named Grian. Moving on to the end of the Saturday slate. So Saturday night in Australia, very early Saturday morning in the United States. We had what we thought were the two best games between Saturday and Sunday going up against each other at the same time, to which we explained you got to keep them separated. Hence the title of the prior episode. I'll let you start just because in our notes page, the game you watched came first. That game being Richmond and the Western Bulldogs. Richmond 15-9-99, defeating the Western Bulldogs 7-19-61. Like Collingwood West Coast, this is a game where you can glean a lot, even if you didn't watch this game, by looking at the trends in the expected score where the Bulldogs were handily ahead for most of it and should have ended up coming home in the end by something around 10 points. Instead, going back to the fourth quarter of round three, so for their last nine quarters, the Bulldogs have kicked 18 goals, 43 behinds. The Bulldogs did plenty of good things, a lot of it through their midfield, no surprise there, but, but they just had trouble getting onto the right end of kicks despite having 
a lot of opportunities. This was the night where I was hoping for a lot more out of Aaron Naughton, just from a pure impartial standpoint, but his set shot difficulty kicking 2-3 summed up a lot of the Bulldogs game. I was wondering if him getting a snap goal in the final minute of the first half after a good minute of pressure leading up to it would have been something off which the Bulldogs could build, really get some momentum into the second half, especially after Jack Revolt missed one right at the halftime siren. But instead, their struggles continued, and Cody Waitman is the forward and the player overall that disappointed me the most. No goals won behind on just eight possessions, where in a forward group that many people may not realize is on the thinner side for the Bulldogs, he really needs to be someone who steps up a whole lot more. You can't just have Aaron Naughton for everything that he can do at just 22 years of age. Another thing to put it in perspective, in addition to kicking 1843 in their last nine quarters, the Bulldogs average just 1.07 points per inside 50 to Richmond's 2.06. That's a pretty staggering margin. And I'm starting to wonder how much of this is just a dry spell. How much of this is Josh Bruce's absence? And is this something that the Bulldogs can handle quickly? Or is this something that's going to be sticking with them for a while, kind of like it did Fremantle last year? Because it's getting to the point of being ridiculous. With the Bulldogs midfield being so solid and with some good defenders, as well as a more than capable rug in Tim English, it's really the one glaring flaw, flaw for them that they don't have some big, tall, key target like, say, a healthier Charlie Dixon. That is a type of player that could really be able to complete the Bulldogs, and I would assume that that's the type of player that their list management will be looking for in the drafts of the trade windows. It's not like they're going to reinvent the wheel at this point and change up their scheme too much, but maybe it'll be worth considering trying to get more free running plays in the forward 50 instead of set shots with how much they've struggled from set shots. I'm just curious to see how they plan to counteract this. What's nice for them is they do have some pretty good opportunities to do that in the next few weeks. Their next few games are against North Melbourne, Adelaide, and that's at Ballarat. Not like they have to go to the Adelaide Oval and then Essendon before heading to Port Adelaide, who is, as we mentioned earlier, 50 more levels of fucked. Transitioning toward the victors in Richmond, it's honestly surprising that we got into the game this much without even talking about what Richmond was able to accomplish. This was the type of game that I expected from them, given the way that they had built success in this flag era for them, which may or may not be over. Jury's out on that. They were great in terms of pressure. Tom Lynch's one-on-one ability gave him four contested marks and four goals. The speed going through the midfield and half forward through Noah Balta and Shea Bolton allowed them some of their best opportunities. Jaden Short was absolutely everywhere. He was a workhorse again. 35 disposals, 29 of which were kicks. Seven inside 50s, six marks, four intercepts. He kicked Richmond's last goal from just outside the center square. And that's honestly perfect for him considering how much he ran. He ran 810 meters, which is obscene. And he did that with just five contested possessions. It's amazing with a team that's so predicated on pressure, how he's able to get to open areas when everyone else is kind of creating that high intensity. But even with all of those players 
and those groups standing out and with Shea Bolton kicking very much a goal of the year contender and one you could definitely see in the top three on Brownlow night. I think the two players that ended up impressing me the most together were the halfback tandem of Daniel Rioli and Marlon Pickett. They have great chemistry there in that role. They are both running really well and kicking very well. Rioli had 25 disposals at 76%, eight marks, five intercepts, five score involvements. And Marlon Pickett seems to be measuring kicks better and better as his career has progressed. And that is very much continuing into this season. 90% efficiency on his 20 disposals, 14 of which were kicks. Seven marks, five intercepts, seven score involvements, 464 meters gained, and a goal. Again, the stats don't say it all, but for players that are able to do that much from that position, I think they can be a good indicator of the success that they're having and can be a way for which fans like we were just a couple years ago where we were so focused on the forwards can learn to appreciate players that are more toward the back part of the field. My biggest takeaway from this, and no, it wasn't a game I watched super closely because I was so focused on Fremantle GWS, which we'll get to in a minute. But Richmond played a far more disciplined game and showed that what they did against St. Kilda a week ago was really just a hiccup. And that was the most important thing. Win or lose, they needed to play a composed, disciplined game. And they did. Even if the Bulldogs won that game, so long as Richmond had come out of it looking disciplined, would have felt pretty optimistic about them. And they ended up doing more than that. They ended up not just being the more disciplined team, but in some ways the superior team. And they were certainly the more accurate team. And that paid off in the final margin. And I mentioned Jack Revolt's miss earlier. He had a couple of them, but then he got the last two goals of the third quarter, which ended up equaling his cousin Nick for his career with 718. And one of them was a torp from beyond 50. So I was wondering earlier on if the thumb that he had broken was affecting his drop. But if so, he was able to adjust very quickly. And that's a very good sign for a Richmond side that doesn't necessarily have a lack of goal kickers, but definitely still gains a lot from Revolt, even at his age. The little exchange between Revolt and the umpire when he said, you know, I'm going to kick a torque. Good luck. And he knocked it straight through. That was really entertaining. That was one of the best moments of the week. And speaking of players coming back in and having an impact, I'm shocked that I haven't mentioned Dion Prestia up to this point because, because it really seems like when he's going, he takes the whole team to another level. In his first game back since his hamstring issue in the opener against Carlton, he had 30 disposals, seven marks, and a goal, and was really just a calming presence. It seems like a player who's able to steady the team around him, just get them going in the right direction whenever he's on the field. And I'm wondering now how much his absence affected them when they were performing so poorly against St. Kilda. We didn't break out the RU screwdometer for Port Adelaide earlier because we all know they're screwed. Let's break it out here for the Western Bulldogs. How screwed are the Western Bulldogs on a scale of 1 to 10? I think that their problems are becoming pretty clear at this point, and I think that even with what they have going through the middle, teams are going to be able to stop their couple best forwards or maybe even their one best forward at this point in Naughton from doing as much damage as he could potentially do until Josh Bruce is back. 
I'm worried for them in terms of how they're going to be able to score. However, with their schedule being what it is the next three or four rounds, I don't think they are completely screwed. And I think that they're a well-coached side and they're going to be able to bounce back. One and three is definitely a concerning mark, but I'm only going to put them at a light to mid four. I'm going to give them a five. It would be higher if the schedule wasn't so forgiving the next few weeks. Just remember how to kick an actual goal and they'll be fine. The other game in that Saturday night time slot, Fremantle hosting GWS. Dockers went on to win this one by 34, 13, 10, 88 to 86, 54. But in some ways, that's a misleading final score. They led by just two points after three quarters, 52 to 50, before pulling away late. A lot of discussion in this one went to the 42 to 16 free kick margin. Although Leon Cameron said that that was largely deserved because Frio is the more aggressive team. One thing that we didn't notice at the time that ended up being a subject of discussion was Michael Walters pushing Tim Taranto into the umpire at the end of the third quarter. We both think he deserves a suspension for that, maybe a week or two. Surprised that it's kind of being swept under the rug, not discussed more by the Australian media. With an early plea, he could accept a $1,000 fine. They're categorizing it as careless contact with the umpire and a first offense. I was thinking that the president of Toby Green was going to be more impactful, but maybe I did take into account the disciplinary history of Toby Green relative to Walters. Nonetheless, with the focus on umpire abuse going into this season, I was expecting the MRO to come down a lot harsher on Walters for what he did. That said, I thought Frio played pretty well and should have been ahead by more most of the way. They weren't having the sort of kicking struggles they've had in the past, but still, they had only kicked 7-10 through three quarters and then hammered that out some in the fourth. They had a couple of late goals between Nathan O'Driscoll and Michael Frederick, who, like his brother, now hits the gritty when he scores. Will Brody racked up 36 disposals. What a pickup Brody's been from... Gold Coast, I don't think anyone expected that he would be having the impact that he's had up to this point. I'm glad he's getting talked about more than Jordan Clark, who I think is a good player that just didn't really have a fit at Geelong. Andrew Brayshaw got tagged heavily, still managed to rack up 26 disposals and a goal. Lockie Ash was the one mainly on him. What this game really left me wondering is, what's Fremantle's identity? Because they were very efficient when they counterattacked. But they were also able to really mount pressure and keep GWS in their own 50 and force some turnovers, including a couple off of some really poor play by Callan Ward. But they're not a great set shot kicking team. So it's a dilemma for them to figure out. And I wonder if Justin Longmuir's absence has anything to do with their identity right now. It seems like a good problem to have because... Whichever of these methods they seem to take, they're successful. But I'm just wondering which of those is the one that generates the most success. You know, it's which of these is good versus which of these is great instead of a clear right and wrong answer. It's more which one's the more right answer. And I'm wondering how much of which one is more right is also going to be dependent on the matchup. There are some teams that you can counter against really well. 
And we'll get to one of those, which is honestly a surprising one, a couple games from now. But there are other teams that are cleaner in their own 50 getting out of there. And so it it does seem like a good problem to have where if you're good in both of those ways, you could be able to shift that based on the other team's strengths and weaknesses. I didn't think GWS played all that well, though Tim Taranto did rack up a nice 31 disposals. I think the one real positive takeaway for GWS from this game was their fantastic banner that the supporters made for them, which read, Giants are in town, tough and hard-nosed. Frio will be wishing the border stayed closed. And I am all for any shot of the Western Australia government. I thought that was terrific. But for the most part, Fremantle was just the better team from top to bottom. And while I think there were a couple of decent performances for GWS, Braden Proust looked pretty good with his 31 hitouts. Isaac Cumming gained 679 meters. From top to bottom, the Dockers were the stronger team. And I'm curious to see what happens when these teams meet later on in Canberra as a GWS home game. I think that's the closing round. But this just reinforced that Fremantle's a good team. I'm just still trying to figure out which identity is going to be the one that creates the most success for them. But consider what they're doing right now without Nat Fife, playing without Darcy Tucker as well. I just think this is a really talented team, and I think they just need to find their identity. Again, the free kick margin is a subject of discussion. GWS had slight advantages in hitouts and clearances, but Fremantle are looking like a really sharp team. That's a finals-caliber team. I'm just not sure if they're smooth enough and clean enough to be able to really go on a dominant run. There were questions about GWS having a second ruck with Jake Riccardi struggling, and now the questions get even more difficult with Proust getting a weak suspension for elbowing David Mundy in the head. And even before that, I was going to say, it feels like at times having a competent second ruck is more important than having a dominant first ruck. And now they look completely screwed in that department and no big deal. All you got to go up against next are Max Gone and Luke Jackson. So that puts them in a really, really lousy spot. I also thought Bobby Hill was just about invisible. Dang it, Bobby. After a couple of pretty good weeks. He was very quiet, finishing with just seven disposals in the behind. Other than an early pair of goals, Harry Himmelberg was pretty quiet. I thought just overall the GWS defense looked pretty weak. A lot of it was just not being able to handle the pressure at all. I did like what I saw some from Sam Taylor. One other standout for GWS was Jesse Hogan, who played very poorly for Fremantle and kind of stuck it to Frio by playing a pretty good game against them. It's funny how that works. I'm just thinking now of how we were asking ourselves last week and we left the question unresolved. Are the greater Western Sydney Giants really real or really fake as we gave them the aloe black test? Do you have any opinion one way or another on them after this one? Or is everything still up in the air for them at one and three? I think it's going to be one and four because I think without Bruce, they're in a really bad spot against Melbourne, even though they beat them last year. But even so, I don't think it's going to be solved. I think the jury's still going to be out on them for a while. However, I do think it's fair to say that they're really screwed for next week. You were talking about how 
it's a problem how it's a bigger problem when you don't have a good second ruck and maybe Matt Flynn will get an opportunity there, but you want to talk two competent rucks. Well, you're going to see the two giant paint bubbles calling back to the title of our round one recap that are Max gone and Luke Jackson. So yeah, good luck giants. You will need every milliliter. Moving on to Sunday. None of these three games looked that appealing. I think the one that looked the most appealing ended up being the biggest blowout, but all three ended up giving us a lot of talking points. Let's start off with Essendon finally getting on the winning side. They beat Adelaide by four, 15-13-103 to 15-9-99. It was an interesting game from an Essendon point of view because I was really impressed with what a couple of their defenders did in the forward 50, particularly. Nick Hind and Mason Redmond. But I think they really leave a lot to be desired with, you know, defending. So I'm wondering if the best thing for Essendon to do is just really play up tempo, bring everyone forward as much as you can, because again, their defensemen are pretty gifted in the forward 50. I also thought after we had given him a lot of crap, while it wasn't a great game for Dyson Heffel, he definitely took a step forward. Finished with 25 disposals. was actually nice to see him featured prominently. Also gained 435 meters. Nick Hine, by the way, gained 624 and Mason Redmond, 514. Those Essendon defenders are much more dangerous on the offensive side than you'd think. Similarly to Heppel, Devin Smith was a veteran who got omitted. And as the medical sub coming on after Will Snelling had his calf injury, he had, let's see. He stepped, uh, coming back after, he had 12 disposals and a goal in his limited time, so clearly the omission was sending the right message. Although my opinion of Smith soured a bit when he had his fair bit of acting when Josh Rochelle punched him. Rochelle ended up getting a $2,000 fine with an early plea, which I expect he'll accept. For Adelaide, the biggest story, of course, was Taylor Walker's return, and sure enough, he kicked four goals, but had a pretty big decision in the final minute. Trailing by four with about a minute left, instead of passing to a teammate, he tried to shoot for goal from a little beyond 50. He missed short, and then Ned McHenry tried to kind of kick a snap off a loose ball that missed wide. And then Redmond's intercept with 11 seconds left sealed the game. That said... I still was super impressed with how Rochelle played. He put up a really solid performance. Three goals to go with his 19 disposals and nine marks. Rochelle is your round four Rising Star nominee. And I was curious to see how he and Taylor Walker would fit together. Well, they combined for seven goals, so I'd say they fit together pretty well. And regardless of his off-field conduct, Taylor Walker's on-field ability is unmistakable. I think he's right up there as one of the best forwards in the game, right up there with Tom Hawkins and some of the others. And it's just the Crows, unfortunately, don't have enough defensively because they've got the forward talent to play with just about anybody. Defensively, they just don't have what it takes to keep up. For Essendon, obviously much-needed win. Peter Wright has 12 goals so far this year, and I think he may be in the Coleman race throughout. I was also really impressed once again with Matt Guelphie, who just seems to find his way to important plays. 
Matt Guelphy finished with one goal, 21 disposals, 334 meters gained. He's one of those guys who it seems like once he touches the ball in the forward 50, something good happens for Essendon. He just gets involved on important plays in a very positive manner. The other guy who I've been super impressed with after he looked absolutely miserable against Geelong in round one was Sam Draper, who finished with 18 hitouts and an important late goal that helped keep the Bombers in control. It's only his fourth career goal, and he was pretty amped up afterwards. Essendon won the hitout battle 44 to 25 with the combination of Draper and Andrew Phillips. Riley O'Brien was the only one who did anything in the center circle for Adelaide. It's very clear that the Crows need someone to support to relieve Riley O'Brien. Hey, how about someone who spells Riley a different way who has been wasting time playing a step down? Riley Philthorpe can be a secondary ruck in addition to his capability in the forward line. And yes, the forwards are pretty crowded, but I think that O'Brien's struggle against the Ruck tandem this past week more than merits Phil Thorpe's inclusion as a second Ruck, if nothing else. Just like I was saying when I was breaking down Fremantle and GWS, I think having a competent second Ruck can be more important than having a dominant top one. And I think this performance and the massive disparity in hitouts there really shows it. Another bomber that I want to highlight is Nick Martin who, after being a little bit quieter these past couple rounds, had 22 disposals, 8 scored moments, 5 inside 50s, and a goal. There are a lot of good things in Essendon's youth movement between Nick Martin, Tex Wanganin. Ben Hobbs is still in the VFL, but he ought to make his debut soon. And then they're still waiting on Harry Jones to make his season debut. I still don't think Essendon is necessarily a finals team. But this was an important win for them. I just think they've got a lot to figure out with actual defending. I think that, like I said, their defensemen are actually really offensively gifted. But you got to find a way to stop other teams or else a top forward's going to get five, six goals against you. And that means their only way to win is going to be in a shootout. Unfortunately, all three of Sunday's games overlapped to a degree. So while the more interesting matchup between Essendon and Adelaide was going on, my focus was on Hawthorne and St. Kilda, which on paper I thought was going to be the best matchup of the day. Turns out it ended up being the most lopsided. Hawthorne 10-13-73, defeated by St. Kilda 22-10-142. St. Kilda really beat Hawthorne at their own game. Hawthorne has made the most of their abilities counterattacking, and you'd think that for a team that is able to do that so well that they'd be able to defend against it well. Not at all, boy! <laughs> it felt like Hawthorne was swarming around the ball really quickly whenever it came loose, and that allowed St. Kilda to go over the top, get out on the wings, and go forward, move ahead really well. And Hawthorne tried to detect it, but it was too late for them to whip it. Whip it good. Brad Hill ran everywhere, and this may have been his best game as a Saint, if not for his career, even at age 28 with everything he's already done, especially during his time previously at Hawthorne. Hill ended up with 23 disposals, 
four goals, seven score involvements overall, and a game leading 450 meters, playing a high half forward role where he avoided the one on one battles that he seems to dislike. Brett Ratten says for some reason that even after that, he'll be at half back again and we'll be shifting him around based on the opposition. And I'm asking, why try to fix something that is clearly not broken? Not only is it not broken, it seems to be firing on all cylinders. Brad Hill was one of four players for St. Kilda with four goals, along with Jade Gresham, who had a goal of the week nominee, Max King, who actually scored on his first set shot, unbelievable, and Tim Membry. I didn't realize Max King is only 21. I think it's the mustache that throws everything off, makes him look a lot older. St. Kilda also did a really good job limiting the impact of Chankwath Joff. Even though his ground game numbers were similar to what they've been in a couple prior games, he was much less effective with the ball in hand, got caught a couple times, and the Saints got a couple free kicks off of some holding the balls and incorrect disposals. They forced a deliberate on him one time. And now I want to see if other teams are going to be able to build off what St. Kilda did and similarly be able to limit him. I also now want to know, and I'm nowhere near experienced enough watching this game to know for myself, what is it that led Hawthorne to having so much trouble, especially in their defensive 50? Were they telegraphing plays really badly because they had a couple turnovers on kick-ins? That seemed really out of place. Or was it just that St. Kilda was reading them really well and had prepared for them? Whatever it is, I clearly misread St. Kilda at the start of the year. As had I. I was thinking that even with all their ability, that some inconsistency from important pieces could put them really down toward the bottom four. Instead, now they're in the top four for the moment. And this was without Jack Hayes, who was just left out of the lineup, and Jack Higgins, who was out injured. Higgins was concussed last week early on in another win for St. Kilda. So clearly not having him isn't slowing them down. That's a great sign for them. A couple other Jacks stepped up, though. Jack Sinclair had 35 disposals at close to 83%, 10 of those being contested possessions. Eight score involvements, eight intercepts, gained nearly 400 meters. Similar numbers from Jack Steele, who had 33 at 75.8%, 15 of those were contested, eight score involvements, six intercepts, similar ground game, and he kicked a goal as well. For Hawthorne, there were really only a couple bright spots. Ned Reeves seemed to hold his own in the ruck versus Patty Ryder and Rowan Marshall. Even though Hawthorne lost hitouts 33 to 25 as a whole, Reeves had 17 hitouts to go along with his goal. And considering how formidable that St. Kilda Ruck tandem is, maybe it's not all gloom and doom on that front while Ben McAvoy is out. The other thing I want to highlight for Hawthorne actually isn't Luke Bruce kicking three goals because he was gifted a couple of those. It's Mitch Lewis taking a hanger and actually kicking a goal off of it in the final couple minutes. That's your other Mark of the Week nominee, along with Brody Majacek's two. Lewis kicked three goals, five. And really, as much as I want to talk about the positives, I just keep going back to that number and thinking how disappointing it is considering the opportunities he had to turn the tide for the Hawks with all of his set shot chances earlier. Within an hour of us recording, we found out that Patty Ryder is getting a two-week suspension for a bump on Will Day, who ended up concussed out of it. I thought this was 
just an unfortunate collision and no sort of bad intent to it all. I thought it was just a football play and an unfortunate one at that. Whereas Ben Brown getting a suspension in the VFL for basically elbowing a guy for no reason looks like he's only going to end up with one game by accepting an early plea. I don't understand the discretion here. I don't understand the consistency. Well, there is no consistency. Maybe the AFL is saying between this and the Brayden Maynard two-week suspension for the Community Series that they're being harsher in terms of all contact toward the head. The MRO assessed the act as careless, high impact, and high contact. I agree with you completely. The phrase that comes to mind for me is, from a broadcaster that I hate listening, Jack Edwards, the TV broadcaster for the Boston Bruins in the NHL, when he called a bad injury, an unfortunate injury, as ugly geometry. But that's how I think of this one. It didn't look like it really got day on the chin by much that the whiplash was what concussed him. And going back to our conversation just last week, is is the AFL really prioritizing this sort of Hammurabi type approach where it's an eye for an eye? If he's out because of a concussion, the guy that caused it is getting hit with a suspension. That isn't the right way to approach this. One thing I noticed, footy kind of mirroring college football with teams holding up giant play calling signs. So one thing that you see in American football, mostly in colleges, is teams holding up these giant signs to signal plays, whether it be to signal what formation they're going to run or what the actual play is. And usually they have really funny symbols. You know, for example, you can find yourself saying, oh, of course they scored a touchdown. They called the Harambe Burger King play. But Hawthorne had maybe the best giant play calling sign we've ever seen. And you can find the image for yourself by simply typing dabbing boombox into your search bar. And you know what? That image is appropriate for that game, but for the other side, because St. Kilda seemed to be able to do no wrong. They were capitalizing on pretty much every Hawthorne mistake. And so I think it's appropriate to give their performance in the, to give their performance their very nice 69 point win. Surprised you didn't mention that, Ethan. 10 dabbing boom boxes out of 10. One last game this week that I think was probably the most surprising result of all. Even more than the Eagles beating the Pies? Yeah, I'd say so. It was Gold Coast not just beating Carlton, but beating them by 30. 13-14-92 to 8-14-62. The biggest story here was Patrick Cripps suffering a hamstring injury. He got replaced by an injury sub early in the second quarter. Jai Ferrer also suffered a hamstring injury for the Suns. Ferrer had just been called up from the VFL. Their VFL call-ups, however, did a really good job. Malcolm Rosas ended up with three goals. I don't know why he was sitting in the VFL before. It was also a great game for Jared Witz with 42 hitouts. The Suns won hitouts 52 to 19. They won clearances 43 to 27. Not just because of Patrick Cripps going down, but also because of Mark Pittenet's absence. They looked really, really weak in any sort of rock work without him. Mabi Archola ended up putting together another pretty nice game. Finished with three goals and a couple behinds. Also had 10 hitouts. He's such a versatile player. And I think the Suns are really letting him play his game and grow into his role. This was a game where, for the first time, I was actually impressed with Gold Coast's defense. 
which I've isolated multiple times, and we've both talked about being such a huge weakness for them. I thought Will Powell had a super gritty performance, including one play where he ended up punching a ball out of play like five seconds after being attended to by, I'm not sure if it was technically the physio or the trainer or who, but he showed just a lot of toughness in doing so. Sam Collins didn't have huge numbers, but had a pretty solid game, ended up with seven marks and 10 disposals. And even though he was technically an interchange for the game, Lockie Weller was tremendous. 31 disposals, 811 meters gained. This is the sort of performance that Gold Coast needs out of their defense because it's clearly their biggest weakness. We know they've got some talent up front. We know they've got a really good midfield. Tuke Miller had another solid game, though his numbers didn't quite jump off the page. He ended up with his 32 disposals. But Lockie Weller played great. And if they can get that sort of performance, then they're not just a really good midfield with nothing else to support them. Noah Anderson had a really nice game for the Suns as well. Finished with 35 disposals, a goal, 682 meters gained, and 10 clearances. He was just kind of everywhere all over the field. And while a lot of the talk is ripping on Carlton because their fans were so loud and full of themselves for the first three weeks, at least that's what I've gotten from the various pages I follow, various sources. Meme pages are really having fun ripping on Carlton after that one. I just thought the Suns played really well. That said, Carlton was super undisciplined. The Blues were giving up 50s left and right. You really didn't notice Tom DeConing at all until the third quarter. Obviously losing Cripps, and not just losing him, but losing him mid-game, so it's not like you had time to prepare for his absence. Played a huge factor, but this was a step back for the Blues. And if it's just one uncharacteristic performance, whatever, but a list of the names you barely heard from included Jacob Wiedering, Harry Mackay finished with two goals, three behinds. He was okay. And he got a five for staging. A deserved one at that. Charlie Curnow had one very early goal, but missed a couple of chances after that. I did like what I saw from Adam Saad. He gained 529 meters. He's so good at moving the ball out of the back, and he really feeds into what they're trying to do. But they didn't have anywhere near as good a night kicking-wise as they had the prior couple games and just kind of laid an egg. And it's an especially funny time for them to do so because this was actually a pretty decent crowd in a stadium that doesn't usually fill up because there were a lot of Blues fans there. You know, they came in, filled a lot of momentum, energy kind of swelling their way, and then Gold Coast really cooled them off. I was expecting a lot more out of Matthew Kennedy. Yes, he had 15 disposals, but just 71 meters gained. Adam Chera also with 15 disposals and a behind to show for it. Chera is one who I really expected to be able to step up in Chris's absence, and really no one was able to fill that hole. You'd think with Patrick Cripps out, it would be a really good opportunity for Patrick Bloods, but he didn't do much either. Side note for our Australian audiences that may not be as familiar, the Cripps and the Bloods are rival gangs that originated in Los Angeles. So it's like, for example, when you had the full moon that was known as the blood moon, you know, people were joking that the Crip moon was going to come out and try to attack it and defend its turf. So yeah, Patrick Cripps, Patrick Bloods. If that went over your head, now you get it. Zach Williams certainly got, got more of the ball after that, ended up with 36 disposals, but did a lot of work in the back still. Eight intercepts there, gained 800 meters 
but I'm just nonplussed by Chera's contributions thus far. I thought despite his numbers looking good on the surface, Nick Newman had a pretty lousy game. He had 24 disposals, but I thought he was constantly getting beat. Chull kind of had his way with him a bunch in the night. The thing that impressed me the most about the Suns is we've said all these good things about them, and we didn't mention Matt Rowell in all of it. He had 19 disposals, four clearances, you know, was a good contributor, but wasn't the star that a lot of people expect him to be. And is that a knock against him, considering the way that he started his career? Potentially, I'd say somewhat, but it's also a testament to what the Suns are able to do as a whole, and that they aren't as reliant on him as a lot of people expected they may need to be. If Noah Anderson plays like that, it's not an issue. Jared Witts, once again, dominated the center circle, as we said, and let's go Brandon Ellis had a pretty nice game as well. This also wasn't the great, this also was far from the most impactful game for Isaac Rankin. Coming back from that quad injury, he did get a goal, uh, but just seven possessions. And they were without Alex Sexton, who was omitted. I think that was what enabled Malcolm Rosas to come in and have his impact. And so even with a lot of the bigger names on the Suns not being as impactful, the team as a whole rose to the occasion. And that's a great sign going forward, especially when you consider, wait, they're also without Ben King this season. So they're clearly building something, and with the additions that they also have this year in the forms of Chol and Casbold. Speaking of Casbold, he was super fired up to get his goal after being dropped by Carlton. There are a lot of good things that may be coming together for the Gold Coast Suns. As hard as that may be to believe. The problem is, every time we think the Suns have something coming together, they have a game or a stretch of games where they just shit down their leg. I mean, that was basically what... Last week was for them against Greater Western Sydney after having stuck with Melbourne the whole way. But it's also a good sign that they were able to bounce back the way they were. Jack Lukosius ended up with three behinds, no goals. There were some injury concerns about him at the end of the game. But this is the sort of game that if they could actually get some traction and actually build on something instead of just kind of sailing around without any sense of direction... If Gold Coast can go from being a rudderless ship to something that actually builds on their success, this could be a game with a blueprint for what things look like for the Suns when they're really rolling, where they've actually got some defenders who can really play. Well, it doesn't get any easier for the Suns the next couple weeks. They've got St. Kilda at Marvel Stadium this coming round, and then they're hosting the Q Clash. So we're going to very quickly be able to see if this was a one-off or if there's something more meaningful here. And maybe we'll actually hear their cheap Broadway show tune type theme song more often than we initially expected. Saints, Q Clash, Collingwood, Swans, Fremantle in the next five rounds for them. And then they get the Bulldogs at Ballarat. Who knows what the Bulldogs will look like by then. So it's going to be a fun few weeks. But this performance at least makes the Suns worth watching. Now that we've seen in the last two weeks, both what they look like at their worst and what they look like at their best. With this round just about wrapped up, it's time, as we do at the end of every week, to talk about the nominees for Mark of the Week and Goal of the Week. Mark of the Week, we've got Mitch Lewis over Ben Patton and then two by Brody Majacek in the span of about a minute. These were both in the mid to late fourth quarter. The first one was a leap over Jeremy McGovern and Darcy Cameron to an extent. And the second one, maybe about 65 seconds later, again against McGovern in the back of him, 
facing away from it, hitting the left goalpost on the way down. He then kicked the goal that gave them a four-point lead, and then they scored a single behind after that. As an Eagles fan, I was really scared after that mark. As a pure footy fan, I was in awe. And as tough as it is to decide between those couple works for me, and also as much as Lewis may make it difficult for some, I'm giving my pick for this week to that second mark from Mayacek. What about you, Ethan? I'm going to go Mayacek second as well with Lewis as second place and the other Mayacek one in third. But those are three that most weeks could win it. I think all three of these were better than anything we saw the week before. For goal of the week, Tom Green had a goal off one step from a tapped ball, which I think he got on the outside of the foot. You had Jade Gresham with a really nice strike from the pocket, but that one ended up being similar and inferior to our clear winner and one which I think should stand in the discussion on Brownlow night, Shea Bolton's crumb and kick from the left pocket on the boundary. I thought the other two couldn't compare to this at all. I thought maybe the long goal by Jed Muse could have beaten one of those two, but Bolton's the clear winner of this. He always has something, whether it's a goal or a mark. He's one of those guys who, if you're showing someone who doesn't know much about footy, what this sport looks like, you can show them what he does because he's such an exciting player. And they're not just exciting plays, they're winning plays. I would not put it past Shane Bolton to whether this year or later on in his career to win goal and mark of the year in, in the same year. It's something that's only been accomplished twice. Peter Basusto did it for Carlton in 1981 and Michael Mitchell for Richmond in 1990. But if there's any player in the modern game who can pull it off, it's Shea Bolton. All right. With that, any closing observations on the week you want to make? Yeah, I actually do have one. So this week we had two more games involving caretaker coaches. Jamie Graham stood in for Justin Longmere once again. Turned out Longmere did, in fact, have COVID. Fremantle won that one. And then Ben Run, that was a completely precautionary move for Blake Carousel to step in and coach against the team for which Rutten played in Adelaide. But Essendon came home by four points there. And so now, if you really want to, you could say that caretaker coaches are second on the ladder because they're 4-0 and at 136.2%, they're not even 5% behind Melbourne. So maybe having a caretaker coach isn't the worst thing in the world. Maybe there's some sort of extra motivation in getting the win for the main guy from the coaches and or from the players. Maybe it's a bit of a fluke, and maybe that also is a testament to how coaches are still able to stay involved with technology being what it is. We have technology. But one way or another, it is a fun little stat. Should you call it an oddity? I don't know. It isn't odd when it's been the same result every time thus far this season. And now I just want to see what happens next time and see if that trend continues. I hope we don't see it all that much, but considering it's happened four times in four rounds, it's something that I think we should expect throughout this season. With that, I think we're just about done here. I'm going to work on removing a warp from my foot, which you can listen to on our sister podcast, Americans Removing the Warts. You have fun with that, Ethan. I just found out that podcast was launching, and so I am very unprepared for that. What I am prepared to tell you is that, again, 
You can find us on Twitter at Americans Footy. I am at Benjamin HK01 on Twitter. I am at Castle Media, K A S S E L M E D I A. And Brian Harambe, who is sleeping on my bed right now, is on Instagram at Cat Named Brian. Best of luck removing your warts, whether they be literal warts or figurative ones. Have a great night, everybody. Thank you.